forces that would bring death and disease have taken hold of a man, yet they recognize Jesus and know what his power means for them. Jesus commands these forces to leave, and people are amazed at his authority. The Gospel according to Mark, the first chapter. Jesus and his disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The Gospel of our Lord. Um, so after the last couple of weeks, how many of you are maybe feeling a little bit uh, trepidatious about what today's sermon might be about? Anybody afraid I'm going to tell you all to be vegetarians because Paul said so? Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Um, today we're going to talk about demon possession and exorcism. We're all at least a little bit familiar with, you know, pop culture images or ideas, like in movies, you know, the spinning heads, the like triple jointed spider climbs up the walls, the strange throat voices. And various faith traditions and organized religions, even today, have some understanding of demon possession and forms of exorcism. For example, when I worked for Catholic Charities, I learned in the required Catholic catechism class that each diocese has an exorcist. And except for the exorcist himself, and I think it's the bishop is the other person who knows, it isn't known who that exorcist is because it's all very need to know. I also, working there, did the mental health eval of a person who was coming seeking an exorcism, you know, trying to figure out, is it really a demon? Or do they have a diagnosable and hopefully covered by insurance break from reality? In Jesus's time, early first century Palestine, demon possession and exorcism were kind of common. It was believed that demons were beings, Satan's assistants who moved into a person, group, object, element of nature, and controlled significant aspects of that person or thing. When we get to Jesus rebuking the demon in today's reading, Mark uses a technical term for demon exorcism from the Greek word, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, epitomio. This term recurs several more times as Mark uses it to interpret other significant events in chapters 3, 4, 8, 9, and 10. The crying and convulsing of the demon leaving is typical of exorcism narratives because that's how you know the demon or the evil spirit has left or is leaving. Again, we see this in movies. Jesus is able to rebuke or exercise this unclean spirit 
by the authority with which he taught. And the annotation in the Jewish annotated New Testament for verse 7 reads, Authority, Greek, excusia, the freedom to express one's powers by teaching without referring to other teachers or scribes while successfully commanding unclean spirits. I almost want to read that as Jesus doesn't cite his sources, but I know that's not right. If we shift for a moment, we do have a particular problem with this text. Mark's writer places the demoniac, the possessed one, in the synagogue. This implies that synagogues and possibly other Jewish institutions are regular haunts of demons and unclean spirits, and that many of their leaders are possessed. Also, we have Jesus giving new teaching and speaking as one with authority, not like those scribes. It gives us the impression that the scribes mentioned are lacking in their ability to speak on God or God's mission and kingdom, and thus they are lacking in ability to exercise demons or other unclean spirits. Now, for our first gospel, likely written around 60 to 65 CE, before and also in the lead-up to the Jewish-Roman war that would destroy the temple and Jerusalem in 70, it's easy to have some sympathy for Mark's writer. I imagine he had a lot of hurt feelings and anger from, at, towards the Jewish hierarchy and institutions. He also is kind of creating a new genre of writing. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's setting up some bold claims, and he needs to support them. He gives us this us v them, Jesus v everybody, and some, it's some real feelings and possibly a needed literary device. None of this means that Mark or any of our gospel writers were anti-Jewish. What it tells us is that they struggled with the Jewish institutions and hierarchies. So did Jesus. And we struggle with our own church institutions and hierarchies today. So it's nothing new. In the years following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, there was a lot going on politically and socially. And we get hints and little glimpses of these things in our readings. What we should not do is read these passages as reasons to or excuses for us to be anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic in our thoughts, words, and deeds. It's been nearly 2,000 years. We know better, and it's on us to do better. For Christians to be anti-Jewish is actually antithetical to our call to follow Jesus in love, peace, justice, mercy, compassion, grace, faith, and so on, which by the way, these are also Jewish values, because again, Jesus was Jewish. As Christians, and particularly as Lutheran Christians, we have a history of condoning and expanding anti-Semitic words and behaviors. Luther wrote, and Hitler quoted, on the Jews and their lies. As Christians in the 21st century, it is imperative we renounce such writings and the violence that is done against our Jewish and other religious minority cousins, and even more so when it is done in the name of our Christian faith. Okay, back to thinking about 
possession and exorcisms in our own time and experiences. Allen and Williamson, in their book, Preaching the Gospels Without Blaming the Jews, give us that definition of possession in antiquity as people or things being controlled by these beings, Satan's assistants, who moved into them and controlled them. So just talking about the people, not the elements of nature, because I don't know anything to say about that. Um, we as people, individuals and groups, we are often easily influenced by outside things, like advertising. Instagram ads for sustainable toothbrush. It's been less than two weeks, but I'm really liking my most recent and allegedly fully recyclable toothbrush. Advertising works. We may be influenced by certain words or phrases, appeals to certain values. This is an election year. What is your favorite or not so favorite politician saying? Think about who you might be supporting or not and why. What are those influences? And not to, you know, beat on January 6th, but the way that crowd moved, it was at moments like they were demon possessed. Now think about possession by evil spirits, demons, whatever. And you can think of this literally, a demon literally possessing somebody, or maybe you think of it more metaphorically. Either is fine. Because in our modern era, we are possessed by outside forces that are not God. Things like our things, by our ideas or corrupted values. Sometimes we are possessed by our own theology. You must believe in God the way I do or you're wrong. Sometimes we're possessed by our own sense of what is fair, even as we might be telling our kids, well, you know, life's just not fair. Sometimes we're possessed by unhealthy relationships. Addiction can be a form of possession. The list goes on. Last week, we talked about what we need to let go of or leave behind to follow Jesus. Within that discussion, we talked about fear. Fear of trying new things, of stepping outside of our comfort zones. We need to let go of our egos, of thinking we have the right answer. We talked a lot. We, we, had, we were able to spend several minutes during our coffee hour worship talking about these things that we need to let go of, to leave behind. We also need to recognize it can be really hard to let go of and leave behind things. It can be really hard to leave behind the things we know, safe or not, and move into something new or unknown. And when we do the work to let go, to leave behind, to exercise the things that have wrong hold of us, it can be painful. Letting go of what we know, even when we know that what we're letting go and it's for the best, can be painful. We may cry out and convulse. 
This is how we know we are doing the work of letting go. That we are working to follow Jesus, pursuing the truth of the good news and God's realm. And we know from God's own faithfulness that when we let go and leave behind what possesses us, that we have the Holy Spirit filling us, moving us, leading us in our following. Thanks be to God. Amen.